0: I think that we're, we're watching a, another great turning in history, and the question is, will the right-wing billionaires be able to hold back this wave that is coming with this younger generation? And I'm skeptical that they'll be able to. And even if they are able to with this coming election you know, this year and in 2024, I don't think that they will have a chance in 2028, assuming we still have a democracy.
1: He's here to talk about his latest book tom has been on my show a number of times if you go back to episode 428 you can hear about his regular biography this book is called the hidden history of american democracy so after a quick word from our sponsor my interview with tom hartman of the tom hartman show So, Tom, you have been on my show a number of times to talk about your series of books called Hidden Histories. Where are we now in the in the list? History of American democracy. Is that the last one or are there more coming?
0: I think it's probably the last one.
1: For those who haven't listened to previous episodes, what is this series about? Who are you trying to reach and what are you trying to tell them?
0: Well, what I wanted to do was write a series of kind of weekend reading books, the kind of book you could read on a Saturday and under 150, under 100, 160 pages, more or less, and that that dealt with some of the real crisis issues that Americans are facing right now. So the first one was on guns. I did one on the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. I did one on monopoly and the power of giant corporations. Did one on the Republican War on Voting did one on healthcare, the American healthcare system in crisis, did one on the crisis of privacy and, and Big Brother and the rise of the internet and all that sort of stuff, and did one on, on neoliberalism, the history of you know how Reaganism gutted the middle class. And that was the last one. So this book, The Hidden History of American Democracy, is where did the founders and framers get the idea from to create this thing that we call a democracy the, or democratic republic to be uh, quite specific? and why, and what was the rationale behind it, and what did they expect, and how weird or abnormal is a democratic republic, or or how appropriate or healthy or normal might it might it be? Is it something that we have to, to really work to create, or is it is it more natural for human beings? So those were some of the questions that I wanted to answer when I started researching the book.
1: When you first conceived of the idea, were we already in the trump crisis of american democracy or was that subsequent
0: well let's see it's been two books a year and this is the ninth book so that is basically five years ago i must have started writing this either no in fact the the book on oligarchy when it was published i wrote that in, in late 2015 or in 2016 because when it was published there i put a a paragraph at the very beginning of the book that said that, you know, if Trump has been elected, then, you know, we need to think about these ter- things in slightly different terms. So I, I guess I started writing the series in the last year of the Obama presidency.
1: Your progressive talk show host. How do you think about reaching people who don't agree with you? Because your audience, I assume, are listening to you because they, you know, they like what you say and they and they have a sense of who you are, but maybe the people who most need to read it are loath to. How do you think about reaching the people who need to learn the history of our country and some of these problems in a accessible book like this or these series?
0: Yeah, I've, I've tried to write the books in a way that is not purely polemic, but they are polemics. I have a, a particular political view. I'm not presenting myself as an unbiased historian, but rather as a, as a person who is using history to inform um, a perspective on contemporary issues, the, the specific issues being addressed in each one of the books. I'm not writing them necessarily to, to the people who listen to my radio program or watch me on free speech TV or on YouTube or whatever, so much as just trying to establish the historical record. How did we get here? How did we uh, end up with all these guns? How did we end up with uh, oligarchy in the United States? Jimmy Carter, seven years ago in my program, said America is no longer a democracy. It's an oligarchy. How did that happen? And how much damage has the Supreme Court done since the essential right-wing takeover of it in the 70s when Lewis Powell was put on the court by Richard Nixon? Those kinds of issues uh, are the ones that have informed the series and, and, of course, this last one on democracy. I realize that, to a certain extent, I'm preaching to the choir just because it's human nature to look for confirmation of one's worldview rather than contradiction. Well, in fact, I know, you know, from people who have called into the program who disagree with me politically, but have read some of my books that it's thought-provoking material for people. That's one of my goals.
1: You have, through these books, before these books, kind of come to, over time, a fairly cohesive worldview that we don't see in a lot of our democratic leaders. Do you feel like they would be well-served by reading this and understanding some of the things that maybe they don't understand if you talk about members of the House or Senate or presidency?
0: Yeah, my worldview is pretty explicitly FDR to Bernie Sanders, progressive in that spectrum, and fairly consistent, fairly predictable, and and I and I think that it it holds together well both historically and, and in the contemporary context. I don't know how, you know how to answer that beyond beyond that. It's been informed by my experience too. I'm, I'm an old fart. I was a teenager in the '60s. I I learned a lot from that time period both uh, politically and and also through you know things like taking LSD and being part of the anti-war movement and joining SDS and stuff like that. And having started and run a number of businesses over the years and made money and lost money. And I think my experience has been quite American. <laughs> it's,
1: it's a- Have you thought about running on a, I mean, the end of this book has a kind of a platform. Have you thought about running for office to as a different way to articulate this sort of Platform?
0: No, I know what I'm good at, and, and I'm not good at being a politician. I'm, I'm a pretty decent talk show host, and I can write well. I can do good research, and I have a good sense of history. My, my father was a, you know, wanted to be a history professor, so I kind of grew up in that. He dropped out of college because mom got pregnant with me, but otherwise, that would have been his career choice. So, uh, you know, I, I have friends who are politicians who have run for political office. I don't suffer fools gladly (laughs) as well as some of them.
1: Well, some of them don't either. Whenever you write a a book like this latest one, you're often tackling misconceptions in the subject that you think are out there. What are the misconceptions that you're tackling in Hidden History of American Democracy?
0: Uh, The idea that democracy is, is some weird thing that a bunch of people came up with an idea for and cobbled together, therefore it's a lot of work and, and, uh, which is not to say that it's not, but, um, you know, therefore it's this kind of weird, unusual thing. There's a chapter in the book that talks about democracy as the default mode for most mammals and not just mammals, actually. There was a fascinating, uh, it was a, a couple of scientists, Conrad and Roper, who, uh, wrote a paper 10, 15 years ago, out uh, of the university of uh, Essex in, in the UK. And, um, they, their their postulate, their their theory was that democracy is actually how most animals make decisions. Their study was pretty amazing and and the, their conclusions were pretty amazing.
1: Like you mean like herd or flock behavior, that sort of thing?
0: Yeah, a fellow by the name of Randerson set out to test their hypothesis at the university, and they had a herd of red deer in a forest that was owned by the university. And so they put cameras in the trees to to find out, you know, how's decision making happening? Because the assumption I think that most people have had over the years is that decision making in animals is hierarchical and, and, uh, you know, authoritarian, essentially, that there's a a lead animal that drives all decisions. And what they found instead was, and these are important decisions, like, you know, when do we go to the watering hole to drink? If you go too late, some animals may end up dehydrated. It could be very unhealthy, particularly younger or older ones. Uh, If you go too early, the animals don't get enough nutrients or, you know, uh, there's all these variables. Plus, there were multiple watering holes. Which one do we choose? And so observing the deer, what they found was that throughout the the day, as the deer were grazing, basically, they would start to align their bodies to point toward one of the three watering holes. And when 51% or 50% plus one deer of the deer had pointed at one particular watering hole, within minutes, the entire herd would form itself and move to that watering hole when that study was published oh and and then the other thing was you know in in our constitution um, we set supermajority thresholds for difficult or dangerous decisions you know if you want to modify the constitution you have to have two-thirds of the house and senate three-quarters of the states and so they put a predator or staked out what the deer thought was a predator it was a stuffed animal but you know it smelled right and sounded right and looked right um, near one of the watering holes to see how it would alter their decision-making process. And instead of 50% plus one, it became 60, 63% plus one before the whole herd would move. There's something there. So when they published this, I, I called up Ken Conrad and, and asked him about this, You know, interviewed him on it, and said, you know, what what happened when you published this? What, what kind of feedback did you get? And he was like, well, you know, the bird people called me up and said, uh, we're seeing this in flock behavior. Where you see, you know, birds flying along and all of a sudden the whole flock just kind of goes off in one direction. I always thought they were telepathic. I I couldn't or or somebody was quacking, you know, okay guys, get ready. We're going to we're going to turn left here. Instead, what it is, is literally every wingbeat is a vote. And when more than 51 percent of the wingbeats move, say, three degrees to the left, the whole flock moves three degrees to the left. A fish guy, an ichthyologist called him up and said, we see the same thing with school behavior in fish an entomologist call him up and say he'd been studying these balls of gnats. If you've ever seen a ball of nat, gnats in the summertime, you know, and they just kind of hang in there in the air and then they'll just like move like this and then they'll go zoom like this, you know, and sometimes in response to predators, you know, like a swallow coming through looking to eat some gnats. Again, it's purely democratic. Every wing is a vote. An ant specialist said we're seeing this with the ants. A primatologist said we've, we see this with gorillas. Generally, there are in most uh, in many species, there are dominant animals, the alpha animals. But typically the alpha animals don't make decisions. They simply have first choice of sexual partner, and that's very Darwinian, you know that the the, the strongest animal would be passing along the best genes and so would have the first choice of sexual partner. But there's uh, virtually no relationship between an alpha animal. And, and and decision-making in most species outside of sexual decision-making.
1: One of the misconceptions that I, th- I thought you were tackling was this notion of our country being created by rich people for rich people, the sort of Charles Beard economic theory of the constitution. Tell me what you see there as far as What do real historians who have examined that see as far as what motivated the Constitution?
0: Well, first of all, at the time of the founding of this republic, the genuinely wealthy people were almost uniformly loyalists, Tories, royalists. They wanted the king to remain. The wealthiest family in North America at the time was the Johnson family. They had this giant castle that they had built on the Hudson River with hundreds of retainers, they called them. Uh, They were basically indentured Europeans who dressed like the Swiss guard, you know, and and defended it. It was a little kingdom, a little fiefdom. They fled to Canada during the Revolutionary War. The richest of the founders was John Hancock, and he was his net worth at the time he signed the Declaration of Independence was in today's dollars about $700,000. Jefferson's home, Monticello, you know, famously a big fancy house. If you've ever been there, it's really not that big and it's not at all that fancy. And he died broke. He died in bankruptcy. George Washington died broke. Madison died near broke. Most of these guys were what today you would call the upper middle class. So, A, knock down the, the rich theory. Then B, this hypothesis that the Constitution was written, and the Constitution, of course, came a decade after the the American Revolution, but that the Constitution was written purely of, by, and for rich white guys. First of all, the the Constitution doesn't say that only rich white guys can vote or participate in elections. In fact, after the signing of the Constitution, there were multiple states in the North where black people voted, where women voted. Most of that ended by the 1820s, 1830s, but there was quite a movement in in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Secondly, I'm forgetting his first name. His last name was MacDonald, decided to really do, uh, to take on Beard's hypothesis. Charles and Mary Beard were these famous historians who in 1934, I think, published The History of America, which was the definitive kind of socialist, uh, the the kind of the Howard Zins of their time, the definitive two-volume history of America. And this was their hypothesis, was that the Constitution was purely an economic document. So what McDonald did is he went back to the state ratifying conventions and looked at what were the speeches given, what were the debates about whether or not to ratify the Constitution, and who voted how, expecting that the rich people would have voted for it and the people, the landless people, the people who were not landowners, uh, the lower income people, the people who were in debt would have voted against it. And what he found was pretty much the opposite, that in state after state, and I lay it out in the book, the people who were voting for the Constitution were the people who were in debt, were the people who were not large landowners, were small business people. The wealthier people tended to be on the side of the anti-federalists, the, you know, the, the opponents of the Constitution. And I think time has shown that were it not for the intervention of the Supreme Court, in, in big ways, and that's the subject of another one of my books, that we would be a much more egalitarian country today, and that we actually were for the first 20 or 30 years. The big transformation came in the North as a, and the South as a result of the cotton trade that made New York a major uh, financial center, and uh, the slave trade, of course, that was associated with the cotton trade. But the big deal was the, the cotton gin, In 1797, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. It took him about 10 years to get it to market. One machine driven by one mule or horse, you know, providing the power to make the machine work, uh, could clean an amount of cotton that was identical to what would normally require 50 enslaved people or 50 people to do the same job. These were fairly expensive machines. And so only the larger plantations could afford them. So during this period from around 1810 to around 1835, the largest plantations operating with a, a level of efficiency that at least when it came to cleaning cotton, which was about 50 or 60% of the entire process, because it's more complex than picking cotton or baling it or transporting it, they had this economy of scale that allowed them to just wipe out the small cotton growers. And they did. I mean, they, the, the small plantations, the small farms, the small cotton operations across the South, just got wiped out during this 25 year period most of their owners ended up being sharecroppers living on the land that they used to own that they had then had to sell to the to the local plantation and a group of uh, just short of 2000 families uh, all plantation owners took over virtually all economic and political power in the south by the mid-1840s and at that point they they just abandoned democracy altogether they still had a facade of it there were still elections but there were no serious candidates who were opposition candidates to the existing system. The South had become a fascist state, and not just you know against black enslaved people. The seventy percent of white people in the South who did not own slaves and who were in debt throughout their lives were uh, routinely lynched, beaten, raped, uh, exploited had their land and their homes stolen, had no legal recourse through the legal system. The legal system basically ignored them. If you voted the wrong way, you could be killed for it. If you advocated the wrong political candidates, you could lose your life or lose your home or your family. By 1861, when the South declared war on the United States, it was a full-blown kind of replay of Hitler going against Poland. It was was a, a state that had completely abandoned democracy and was, in every sense of the word, a truly fascist state. I realize the word didn't exist at that time, but um, from the merger of corporate and state interests, which Mussolini identified as the essence of fascism, which was basically these 2,000 plantations owning the the entire political apparatus of all the southern states, to uh, the routine use of violence to enforce uh, social order, to a very rigidified class system that was not purely a racial hierarchy. And When Lincoln talked about the fate of democracy being um, in the balance in the Civil War. He was not exaggerating. That was exactly what it was. That is a, a little piece of history that most of that information, the a larger treatment of that is in my book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy. But I bring it up in this book. You know, I revisit it briefly in this book on the history of democracy. It's a piece of our history that I don't think most Americans even know, much less realize You know, how close we came to losing our democracy altogether
1: we are also in a time where our democracy is in balance right now there's a a whole lot of things that are structurally biased against democracy and a party that is leaning the other way major party obviously the republicans how do you see our current politics going into 2024 election through the lens of what you're thinking about democracy in this country historically
0: one of two things is going to happen. I mean, either the Republican Party is going to seize power and they've got a lot of money behind them. There are multiple right-wing billionaires who are, I mean, the last election cycle was a, was a $5 billion election cycle. the one four years before that was a $2 billion election cycle. I mean, this is what came about as a result of Citizens United. Before Citizens United, we'd never had a billion dollar election cycle. This election cycle may well be a $10 billion election cycle. The 2024 race, if the right-wing billionaires and their and their toady politicians in the Republican Party prevail, I think we're going to see probably something much like the recreation of the old South, which is what you know a number of these politicians are just explicitly saying that they intend to do. Certainly, Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott and, and Donald Trump and people like them. There were no opposition newspapers any longer in the old South, even if you wrote letters to people. Uh, criticizing the political system at the time. They were routinely read in the post offices and you could be hanged for that. I just see that as one possible direction America goes. The other being that if there's an overwhelming uh, repudiation of these people at the polls in 2024, then possibly the the kind of Mitt Romney wing of the Republican Party will regain its, its footing And the right wing billionaires will uh, decide that, you know, it's better just to be a billionaire than than to be the factotum of the emperor and maybe going back to just being billionaires. I don't know. Uh, Although I I think that's probably overly optimistic.
1: We'll see. Clearly, one dimension of the fight is right wing billionaires, but there's way too many sort of regular people attracted to Trump or DeSantis without regard to who is paying for their ads. How do you understand their interest in, you know, in a right-wing type candidate like Trump or some of the other lead candidates for that party?
0: I think there's a couple of variables at work here. One is the reality of authoritarianism. Robert Altman wrote a book about this. John Dean wrote a book, Conservatives Without Conscience. Altman's book was called The Authoritarians, and Dean's book was based on that, John Dean. And... Um, You know, uh, psychologists tell us that roughly 20 percent of us are authoritarians. Ninety nine percent of the authoritarians are authoritarian followers. They're they're people who kind of developmentally were arrested at childhood and they just want, you know, big daddy to take care of them. But they're looking for a leader to follow. And the Republican Party is very good at that. The old saying, uh, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. There's this strong authoritarian streak that has run through the Republican Party for for a long time certainly uh, my entire lifetime, or at least most of it, I'd say since the Eisenhower presidency. So that I think explains some of it. Another part of it is uh, just good old-fashioned tribalism. The Republican Party has done a very good job of branding itself with rural America, associating itself with NASCAR and with uh, you know being on horseback. Ronald Reagan did this very very well, you know, the American cowboy, the American West, binding itself to aggressive heterosexuality. These things are, are brands and there's a sense of tribalism associated with them where, where people feel like, yeah, this is my tribe. These are my people. They may have some weird beliefs. And maybe they don't really believe in democracy or whatever, but they're my people. And then I think a third part of it, which may be the largest factor, is fear of the other. Um, uh, you could call it racism, but I think it's much larger than that because it, it encompasses anti-Semitism it encompasses xenophobia we're seeing this play out right now in, in Northern Europe in a big way. Sweden now has a, a right-wing a kind of neo-fascist prime minister because uh, 10, 12 years ago when the Russians bombed the crap out of Syria to protect Bashar al-Assad's uh, regime because they have all the deep water ports there near Damascus, some 5 million Syrians fled into Europe over over the course of two years or so. And being brown skinned and speaking Arabic and and practicing Islam when they showed up in these white Christian countries that had always thought of themselves as being egalitarian and at least post-World War II, you know, after the horrors of the Holocaust and everything else, you know, no, we're open minded and all this kind of stuff. There's some really good research showing that when a culture uh, goes through a significant cultural transition, more than about a 3% change in cultural norms that there will be a severe, a substantial, a measurable cultural backlash. And so this uh, anti-immigrant sentiment is driving the AFD party in Germany, the reinvented Nazi party, which now has about 20 percent of Germany. Uh, Italy just got an openly fascist uh, premier, prime minister or president. I forget what it's called in Italy it's playing out in a big way in the United States. And that was the, that was what Trump began his campaign with when he came down the escalator and said, you know, Mexican robbers and rapists and murderers. Um, so, uh, and, and like I said, I don't think it's just race. I think it's culture. It's all those other differences combined.
1: All that said, you feeling optimistic or not about our future?
0: Yeah, I actually am. And the the main thing that makes me optimistic is the Zoomers, the the generation that's coming up right now, the the Gen Z. This is probably the most woke generation of my lifetime. They remind me of of my generation, or at least the people that I associated with, you know, back in the 1960s. I think that there's something to Neil Howe's uh, fourth turning theory that, you know, every four generations, America goes through this major transition or Turchin's, his hypothesis that we go through these, you know, in in Howe's book, it's 80 year cycles, four generations, 80 years. In Turchin's, it's 40 year cycles, but it's basically 40 years of conservative, 40 years of liberal, 40 years of conservative, 40 years of liberal. And here we are 40 years after the Reagan revolution. And the Reagan revolution was, you know, roughly 40 years after FDR. I think that we're we're watching another great turning in history. And the question is, Will the right-wing billionaires be able to hold back this wave that is coming with this younger generation? And I'm skeptical that they'll be able to. And even if they are able to with this coming election, you know, this year and in 2024, I don't think that they will have a chance in 2028, assuming we still have a democracy.
1: What's next for you?
0: I'm not sure. I had a conversation last week with my publisher about writing a book about, you know, the, the very specific challenges to democracy and the crisis of America right now. I'm kind of working that out in my head and I'm just continuing to do the radio and TV show every day. So get the word out.
1: Well, appreciate your time. Thanks for showing up today for this conversation. Anything else you want to say?
0: Oh, Nathaniel, thanks so much for inviting me on your program. It's an honor and a pleasure. And it's nice to see you again.
1: Okay. Take care of yourself. That was Tom. He's at TomHartman.com.